And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading this week, Harmony? We are reading the second half of Children in Blood and Bone. Last week, we stopped at page 259, which was the end of chapter 33. And now we're reading chapter 34 all the way to the end. Yeah, I have to say I was proud of myself because I picked that page just because it was like numerically right in the middle. But there was actually the tone shifts right after that. So it worked out really, really well. Things get a lot faster. During the second half, a lot happens. There's a lot of plot. There's a lot of plot throughout this book, but the second half is especially plot heavy. There's a lot of bing bang boom, which is partially because of the timeline. So general summary for what happens in the second half of this book. We end that first part and they just come off of this awful gladiator style battle and everyone's sort of reeling from the consequences of that. So we reopen with Amari really sort of reflecting on what she's done because she's taken a life and she's never murdered before. And so she's starting with sort of this, I don't think it's an identity crisis necessarily, but like a an identity with herself and what she's capable of and what she'll do for the things that she really believes in as well as as we talked about a little bit last episode a moment of steel within herself where she realizes that this is what she really believes in and that she should be here and that she needs to keep fighting and because the group has the sunstone now they're now on the way to the island to try and restore the magic but they get stopped by Anon who catches up with them and then Zane and Amari get kidnapped essentially by what they come to discover is a group of magi humans who had the scroll at one point and don't. So Anon and Zaley end up teaming up to go rescue Zane and Amari. And ultimately, there's a lot of shit that happens there. Zaley ends up losing her magic for a little while. She gets captured by the king, but the book ends with magic being restored to the world. And that's where we go dark. We don't get to see any of the consequences of it. We just know that the magic worked and that's it. Some things Maggie skimmed over because this is so, so plot heavy. Just to reiterate, because I think that they're important. Zilli and Anon end up having sex at one point. They fall in love. A lot of people die. So we ended on one big battle scene. And then there are two more big battle scenes. No, three more big battle scenes that end in blood and turmoil and death and really give us some insight about how magic can be weaponized and why people are so scared of it. And Anon twists and turns all around. He wants to be with Zaley. He wants to like not stand in her way. And then he wants to destroy magic and he loves her, but then he betrays her and Baba dies and it's a whole thing. Yeah. And we also get a little bit more backstory of the King Saran's sort of point of view, which not that we'll see from her perspective, but he talks to Anon for the first time, it seems like, almost as individual to individual about his ideals and why he's so set that magic needs to be destroyed from the world. And I don't know about you, but at the very least, I don't come out of that thought process agreeing with him by any means, but it does give you more context of why and how this world has ended up with such intense oppression of the Magi to begin with. And something that I did think that was interesting that I do want to dive into a little bit later that he said was this idea that the diviners, when they tell this story, always start in the middle because to them, that's sort of where their story starts, so to speak, because that's when things go to shit for them, essentially. So we get a lot of backstory context that's important about the power dynamics here, as well as besides Justin on and Zaley's love story, Zane and Amari's intensifies as well, although a little bit less explicitly, I would say. There's romantic feelings there, but there's no fade to black sex scene like there is for the other two. (laughs) 
I think when I was reading that part, the part that you're talking about with the king's backstory, the second time around, two things kept on coming back to me that you had talked about in last week's episode. And one of them was toxic masculinity, because the king's whole backstory essentially is that his father tried to help Magi and was a friend to the Magi. And then he tried to be a friend to the Magi. And then a flamer burned his village and his home and burned his family. But to me, he keeps saying that you can't have I can't remember the direct quote, but it's something like you can't choose your heart over your duty and he chose his heart and ended up losing the love of his life and to me that was very much a callback to this toxic masculinity idea this idea that in order for you to be happy in order for you to be full you're sacrificing your responsibility as a leader or as a man and another interesting part about that scene was that Anon does have this great ability of emotion and empathy because of his magic and so when the king is telling us this we get to see it all because Anon is physically seeing it all because of his magic he feels all of the memories and all of the pain which really adds something to Anon's character and Anon's decisions because he gets to see more than any other character I think in this book both sides even more than Amari who I think we come out thinking of as the good guy as the the one who made the right choices right but Anon gets to see both the costs and consequences and yet gets to feel all that but still has to deal and unpack with all of his own shame and his own responsibilities that's super true and I think the toxic masculinity also comes out because both Anon and Amari at this point reflect about their father and reflect about the fact that he almost believed he couldn't love his children in order to love his children. He felt he was too soft with his first family, with his first wife, with his kids. And that's ultimately why they died. So in some weird and twisted, you know, of logic, he prizes these two children and therefore refuses to let himself love them, lest it make them soft and put them in danger again. There's a lot of, I think, really deeply packed things to say about emotion here. I want to dive a little bit more into Anon's empathy ability, though, because last week we had started to see a little bit of, of what he could do. But in this half of the book, we really see a much fuller range of what his ability looks like, I would say. And I think that this book has something interesting to say about empathy because of that, which is something like empathy can be a really useful tool to help you see everyone's point of view, but you have to be able to see everyone's point of view and still come out on the right side of history, right? Because the reason that Anon ends up accepting his magic and falling in love with Zaley to begin with is because he feels her deep and undescribable pain and terror for the reign of oppression that she's lived under her entire life. He sees her mother die. He sees various things from her life that have made her who she is today. And he has this moment of breakthrough where he's like, I can see, but I can never actually understand what it was like to go through all of this, even though given his ability, he viscerally feels it as well. But then, so he turns sides to be with Zaley, and he's pro-magic for a while. But then he uses the same ability with his father and is able to be influenced and flipped the other way. So I think that this book has something just interesting to say about empathy and that empathy isn't enough, right? You have to have empathy plus something else. And so far, Anon, at the very least, I don't think has that because he is so easily influenced by his ability, which I don't necessarily think would be a bad thing, except for the fact that he ends up to a certain extent right back where he started, except for the fact that now he's in love with Zaley, so everything's 10 times more complicated. I think that's really interesting that you point that out. But Anon, Anon never really thinks that magic should come back. He feels in love with Zaley and he like doesn't want to get in her way. And he says that. But after one of the battles in which Zaley and Anon go and try and rescue Zane and Amari from the other Magi, who they don't know are Magi at this point, Anon sees the magic at work in big, terrible ways and is scared of it and is pretty resolute in his belief that magic can't come back, that he has to destroy this. 
I think that's extra interesting, actually, because there are moments where he seems like he's all for it. But thinking back, we actually get all of those conversations from Zaley's point of view, not from Anon's. The point where they're talking about the fact that he wants Zaley, they're in the dreamscape, and he wants Zaley and her family to come back to Lagos. And he thinks that he's going to be able to convince his father that magic is okay, and that everything should come back. And in that moment, from Zaley's point of view, he convinces her that he's all for this. And so I think as the reader, you start to believe it as well. But all of the moments like that were never really in his head. All of his points of view, he's still struggling with this. And most of what he ends up coming to is, like you were saying, clouded to a certain extent by the fact that he loves Zaley and wants her to be happy. So that's really interesting because I hadn't really picked up on that. But there are moments where the book tries to convince you that Anon's changed his mind, but we only ever see it from Zaley's point of view being convinced by his words. But what happens in his head and his actions especially never truly back that up. Yeah, so it's just, it's interesting because you're talking about coming out on the right side of history. And the, the issue with bias, as we've talked about in past episodes, you know, we're recording this on Monday, January 18th. So things are still a little tense here. But the issue of bias is that we think no matter what, that we're coming out on the right side of history. We think that our beliefs are right no matter what. So what can you do, what could Anon do to combat his deep-seated bias and his deep-seated trauma related to his father? How does he end up coming to a conclusion that is more humane? I mean, I think in actuality, he needs therapy and education that's not dictated by his father, frankly, which isn't going to happen in the story, obviously, because that's just not how stories go. But in real life, (laughs) those would probably be my first two suggestions given the fact that due to his ability to empathize, I think there is a part of him that's more predisposed to listen to opposing point of views. I think that's really what we get from Anon's power is that he is predisposed to listen, but what he does with that information still gets filtered through that bias, still gets filtered through that toxic masculinity, and still gets filtered through the trauma he's endured, as you were saying. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Do you think if Amari had this power, this power of empathy in the same way that Ananda, that she would end up having a different perspective? Or do you think the fact that Binta was her friend and the fact that she gave up on her father's love so many years ago already made her more predestined to accept this belief? I think it's that and being less conditioned into this way of life in general. She had been taught all her life that magic was bad, etc. But there's a difference between being taught that and there's a difference between being used as a weapon in pursuit of that ideology like Anon was. So I think that Amari ultimately would have been less swayed by what she, you know, discovers about her father's perspective if she had this power. But I think that's partially because the indoctrination doesn't run quite as deep in her to begin with. So it's hard to say. And I think that's exacerbated by the fact that the trauma with her father is different than Anon's trauma with his father because she did give up on his love and frankly her mother's love too much younger than he did. Yeah, no, there's actually something and some of the final scenes we get Amari's perspective because eventually King Sauron goes ahead and tries to kill Anon because he finds out that he's a Magi and Amari sees it and saves him and on page 510. Zilly cries from across the temple, force me to pivot just as my blade pierces another soldier. She falls on her knees, shaking, ash spilling between her fingers. I run to help her but skid to a halt as father raises his sword and plunges it into the stomach of one of his own soldiers. As the boy falls to his knees, his helmet slips off, not a soldier. Anon, everything inside me runs cold as blood spills from my brother's lips. It is a sword through my own gut. It is my blood that spills. The brother who carried me through the palace halls on his shoulders. The brother who snuck me honey cakes from the kitchen when mother took my dessert away. The brother father forced me to fight. The brother who cut me in the back. It can't be. I blink, waiting for the image to correct itself. Not him. Not the child who gave up everything to be everything father wanted. That line really struck me, this idea that Anon did. Anon gave up everything to be his father's weapon. And that's what he was conditioned to. And that's 
kind of what Amari was supposed to be, but she was a princess, so it maybe wasn't as much. She was a little bit younger. And Amari chose not to. And so she just got to choose not to, but Anon never did. Anon did it. He made the choice and he became his father's weapon and he just wants his father's love. And I think that part of what makes his ability so interesting is that he tries to give up his humanity in pursuit of this. But his empath ability almost doesn't let him ultimately because he's forced to contend with other people's feelings and emotions. And in some ways, if not the consequences of his direct actions, then at the very least the consequences of his father's actions and the reign that he's upheld this entire time. And I think that part of what makes Anon feel so complicated is the fact that he regains humanity and then is wishy-washy about it and almost doesn't know what to do with it, which is frustrating as a reader when you so desperately want the magic to come back. And also I was like low-key on board for this alien on ship. I wasn't at first and then by the end I was. And so like you want him to not fuck this all up. Let's be honest, it's part of the writing, you know, is that all of this feeds into it. But at the end of the day, I do think there's some truth to the fact that even if you gave up you know, so much of what makes us human, so much empathy, so much understanding, and then suddenly got it back. I don't think you would automatically make the quote unquote right or better choices automatically. I think that you just have a new set of information to work with and Anon does the best with that that he can and still ultimately comes out in a place that I don't agree with, but then simultaneously can empathize with because by the end, Anon is a character that I like, even though... I wish he did things differently. So I think that in, in some ways, Anon is one of the most compelling characters in the story because he set up the entire first half to like be this indoctrinated villain. And by the end, he's just this complicated mess of a kid. But I think to go along with the passage you read, this is a, a part from an early chapter from Zaley's point of view that really stuck with me. It's on page 313. And it says... Then help me. Anon leads by my side, careful to keep his distance. Please, I want to understand. You can't. They built this world for you, built it to love you. They never cursed at you in the streets, never broke down the doors of your home. They didn't drag your mother by her neck and hang her for the whole world to see. And that little part is in the middle of this larger realization by Zaley that she's afraid all the time, which she's never really admitted before this conversation. But I feel like this accusation that she levies at him gets to the whole point of what makes him so frustrating, is that even with this ability, he can't understand what it's like to live in those circumstances. And I think really until the moment his father discovers he has magic and tries to kill him instantaneously, he doesn't actually realize what those sentences mean you know he doesn't get the full scope of what it means to live in a world that is built for you even if it changed him simultaneously yeah I guess I can see that I mean right after that quote that you read there's a passage from Anon where he's saying she's right I'm never going to understand even though I can feel all of these things like I'm never going to get it and I do think for people like Anon and Amari who grew up with such privilege. I think that's kind of that's a part of getting it is this idea that you can feel all these things with people, but you you aren't living it. You're not the one in their shoes. But I also kind of want to push back against that because Anon is losing his privilege throughout this book, even though it hasn't been revealed yet. That's part of this building fear is this idea that now he is a maggot and his privilege is gone. He's terrified of his father and what will happen, even though he says that it will be fine and he can convince him. Like we know from looking at his thoughts, I think there's enough context that he knows that he's never going to be able to convince his father and that his father will kill him. I think that I contend with that in two ways. I generally agree with you, but I do think that as the book progresses, Anon has the thought about not truly being able to understand less and less. Right after the scene, he does have that realization. But the more he shares with Zaley and the more he shares with his father, the more immersed he gets in their feelings and the less he sort of pulls out of those experiences and sort of gives that expository of, I still don't really understand. He gets caught up in the magic of it to a certain extent. And I think that I agree with you on your second point, but I think that there's still a difference between the suspicion and fear that something happening and the confirmation that what you feared is right. So this lack of privilege is building throughout the book, but I just don't think it solidifies to the same extent in his mind as it does 
when the instant he uses magic, his father pulls the sword. It's the confirmation of all those fears. But until that point, the lack of privilege was still to a certain extent kind of intangible to him. And that's the moment where the knife cuts, you know, and he realizes what it means. So I feel like at 313, where Zaley's talking about that, he's still more in that mindset of this world is built for me. He's he's wary of it. He's scared of it. He's suspicious of it. But he hasn't understood what that means as true fact for him yet as consequences. That's fair. That's very fair. Is there anything else we want to say about Anon? I don't want to get too deep into this, but how did you feel about the sort of love story that happens between him and Zaley? Because on the one hand, I was I was like shipping it at the end. But on the other hand, it felt very instant. And a little trauma porny to a certain extent in the sense that so much of what he learns about her in the early book is just about all of the terrible things she's endured and how she's come out of that in a really strong way. And I understand why Zaley changed her mind about him relatively quickly. But there is a part of me that's like that was like with Zane. And I was like, this is really fast to just totally change your opinion about someone. I think that all rings true for me because I don't know. It's hard. It's hard because my reading experience really affected my feelings about that story. And both of my reading experiences of this book now have been kind of under weird circumstances. And that it was a really fun book, but the first time I was listening to it. And so I didn't feel like I was getting the full reading experience that I would have for me if I were reading it. And so that meant I was comparing it a lot to Avatar The Last Airbender the first time. And I was like, oh, it's Zuko. And I guess he's just now our main love interest. I guess that's fine. But also it's like a little weird. But also, I mean, it's hot. So I'm here for it, you know, because I wasn't reading this analytically. And then the second time, I think it felt even more fast for me because the second time I was reading it through both audiobook and paperback, which is a whole other reading experience that I'm not sure how to feel about yet and much faster than I typically consume media. So it felt problematic, but also I was like here for hot sex, but also I was like, yeah, this probably isn't the best, but also why are we judging Zaley? And I kind of thought about why Zaley might be attracted to bad boys, because I think we get the hint. I mean, I haven't read the second book, so I don't know. I think we get an inkling of a secondary love interest in her reactions to him. And he's also kind of a bad guy. So I think for me, this idea of this relationship was more fascinating from Zaley's perspective and why she's going for these kind of problematic love interests and what she might be attracted to about that. And I think the conclusion that I came to is that Zaley feels a lot like the prince. Zaley is equally fearful, if not more so. And she also has a lot of trouble not swimming in that hatred and I think the difference between Zaley and the prince, for instance, is that Zaley doesn't come from a position of power, even though she has this tremendous power now. So her ability to harm is lessened by that. And I think that, that her not coming from that position of power also really helps her develop a strong moral code. I don't know. I think Zaley kind of feels problematic. I think she feels a little bit evil and a little bit dark and a little bit broken in similar ways. And that's part of what helps this relationship blossom. I would agree with that. I also think, and I think that if it's okay with you, Zane might be the next character that I want to talk about. But I think that Zane's knee-jerk reaction to all of this as being extraordinarily negative doesn't help in a way that I think is indicative of just sort of sibling relationships in general. I also think that there's part of Zaley who has limitations and knows that her magic has limitations, but also has new power for the first time and realizes that she can physically contend with people who she probably wouldn't have contended with prior. And I think that she gets some sort of satisfaction from the fact that she can now tangle with whoever she wants. And I don't think that's all the attraction that's between the two of them. But I do think that that's an undercurrent of it. You know, she's almost willing to take the risk a little bit because she feels like if push comes to shove, she could put it on back in his place, at least at the beginning. I think that gets significantly more complicated at the end, given the fact that she loses her magic. She is extraordinarily tortured 
it feels like more genuine feelings develop between the two of them. There's a stronger bond. But I think that that initial attraction partially stems from that, at least. Yeah, I agree. I think that Zaley isn't a damsel in distress. And that's part of why she's willing to court danger. Yeah, that's it. That's the feeling is that she's willing to like sidle up to the danger and be like, all right, let's see what happens here. And I think to a certain extent, some of this, to me, real deeper emotion felt like it came out in the moments where she's stripped of her power after Sauron takes it from her. And Anon is still, in her mind at least, actively trying to help her. Although we know from... (laughs) his perspective that as much as he still feels deeply in love with her, he's been swayed in other ways. But I think from Zaley's point of view, it's not until that it's not until she's unable to court danger anymore that some of that emotional connection deepens. And that's what makes the ultimate betrayal of Anon using her father as leverage so crushing at the end. Yeah. No, I agree. I think even if she didn't have her powers, it would be crushing. But yeah, I think the idea is that she let her guard down for him. She was willing to court danger because at the end of the day, she had all this power. He seemed like he was okay. It seemed like she, she could trust him. But at the end of the day, what was he going to do? She could take him on. And then now she's weak and she discovers that she should have had that guard up. And then it also gets extra complicated because killing her, her father dying is ultimately what brings the magic back to her. But we'll get to that. Yeah, I want to talk about that. That's what I'm most excited about. So do you want to talk about Zane? Really fast. I don't have a ton to say about him, except for the fact that this second half of the book complicates him a lot. For the most part, in the first half of the book, we talked about him and saw him mostly as being pretty decent overall male character. And in this half of the book, we see him struggle with his emotions a lot more. He's hypocritical because he's really into Amari and is super, super angry when Zaley's into Anon. He doesn't trust Anon at all. There feels to a certain extent almost like there's a little bit of alpha dog rivalry happening between the two of them. And then on top of that, he's really mean to Zaley. And you come to find out he slut shames her, but he also you also come to find out that as much as he had been acting like Zaley was really capable and sort of leading the entire time he still felt like he was managing the mission and keeping her intact and very much just feels like his role in this group is to temper Zaley because everything blows up in her face and therefore she fucks everything up. So we see him, I think, knocked down a little bit from his pedestal when push really comes to shove at the end of the book. And then he feels intense guilt about it because Zaley's taken and he's like, I was wrong. I was just angry. I shouldn't have left. But there's this moment of real vulnerability in that third quarter of the book where he's so angry and so upset that he can't moderate his emotions appropriately. And he lashes out because of it. Yeah, reading that scene made me want to go back to last week's episode and scrub it clean because we had talked about how non-toxic he was and I was like oh yeah this happens that's right he is toxic I wonder I don't really remember this scene very clearly from this reading but I remember it from my last reading when Amari goes to talk to all of the magi people and get them to touch the scroll so that they can get their powers what was Zane's reaction to that because I feel like before that Zane also had little faith in Amari who is his love interest they have a much more slow burn sort of romance they tiptoe around each other for much longer I think that gender roles are a little bit more concrete in this in this book than we originally thought in the first half And I think that we see that with Zane's treatment of the woman characters. I agree. I think that he really doubted Amari and then she sort of did it and she pulled everyone together and was the leader. And all of a sudden he saw her in a much different light and he saw her as being much more capable, which you see, I think, developing through this entire second half. It starts right from the get go, right? Because we get you know, right at page 260, really, we get Amari's perspective and she's panicking and Zane is kind of the one who comforts her a little bit. Um, uh, Zaley does too. But Zane is one of the first ones who is like, you know, you really are in the lion air, so to speak. To a certain extent, it feels like everything Amari does subverts Zane's expectation of what she can do and to maybe what she should do a little bit as well. And I think that's ultimately why they end up sort of 
together, but it does point to normative gender roles and some toxic masculinity. It almost feels like by the end, she kind of has to continue proving herself to him. And I don't think that that's how she views it necessarily. But as a reader seeing similar scenes of acceptance of her power being read over and over again. That was kind of the vibe I was getting by the end. Okay. Are you done talking about Sam? Because I think that's a really great prelude into another thing I really wanted to talk about, which is Amari and Zaley's little romance scene. And I say romance loosely, but it's it's deeply loving. I want to talk about Amari and Zaley too. Because I think that, you know, we talked last week about the fact that there wasn't very much female solidarity between them. And again, almost right from the get-go from page 260, that starts to change. Where Amari talks about her role in the battle, essentially. And Zaley gives her a look that's almost a smile, almost approving. And their friendship builds from there. Yeah, yeah. And there's something... I mean, Zaley is so broken at this point, right? So she goes and she knocks on Amari's door because she needs to tell somebody that she's lost magic. But to me, our conversation about Zane and our conversation about Anon really amplifies this moment even more because it shows that even though these, these two girls have strong connections with these two boys, right? That's not the true romance in this story. That's not the true thread of solidarity that we need. It's not the true connection. It's Amari and Zaley. And they come together and they are the warrior and the princess. And they do believe in one another. And Amari even says to Zaley that even if she didn't know it, she knew that Amari was the lion heir before anyone else did. Because she expected more of Amari. Yeah, and they have this very tender moment with each other that I agree with you, like, borders a little bit on romance. This is this very deeply loving moment where Amari's listening to Zaley. Amari's the only person Zaley feels like she can go to. And even then, you know, it takes her it takes her some time to work up to it. And they have this, like, very genuine moment where they're talking about this really deep saving the world shit. But... Amari's dressing Zaley up a little bit and she's doing her hair and she makes fun of Zaley because she's she's got such a steady hand but she can't put on her makeup right and it's just this very soft and tender moment and Amari doesn't judge Zaley for any of it she doesn't judge her for pretending to have the magic for a little while even when she didn't she just listens with these soft and open arms and still she believes that Zaley is going to be able to do what it takes to do the right thing. And part of that is because she can get, she thinks that she's going to be able to get her magic back. But it's really, I think, just this showcase of the fact that these two girls in different ways have overcome all of the odds at this point. And as long as they have each other, they're going to continue to do it. You know, they're going to continue to be able to draw strength from each other and do what needs to be done. And it was like a really soft moment in the best way possible. It made me so happy. Prior to this, we had seen that their relationship had improved and that they were friends now and things and stuff was better. But this was the first sort of on page moment of real vulnerability that we see Zaley have with just Amari. And it, it was really beautiful to read about. Yeah, it made me cry. And then we get blood and gore in the next few chapters. So. <laughs> yeah, you know how it goes. But Zaley gets her magic back, you know. And she does do it. Do we want to talk about Zaley and the magic and the blood? I want to talk a little bit more about Amari first, just for a second, because I think that it's also, we saw Amari, and again, talked a little bit last week about the fact that Amari's going on a personal journey as well. But in the first half of the book, she she also is feeling a little wishy-washy about it. And in the second half of the book, she so comes into her own. And it's not because of Zane. It's because of Zaley and because of this newfound power that she finds within herself to be somebody who is almost like soft and caring and understanding, but also is hard as steel and is a warrior as well. She finds her inner warrior in this book, which she had previously rejected because she didn't want to be weaponized by her father. But she realizes in this half that she can almost be her own weapon, if that makes sense. And it's really empowering for me at least, to watch her go through that change. And it goes so far to say this entire time, Anand and Amari aren't in the same place very often. 
So we see a lot of Anon being like, I'm the future king. I'm going to be able to lead this. I'm going to be able to change this. And at the end, what happens is Amari says for the first time, you know, if you do this, the future queen will be in your debt. She she discovers for the first time that she will be the best ruler and she has the best interests of people at heart and she wants the power for herself. And it's not just that. It's she finds it within herself to realize that if that's what needs to be done, she can take it. She can do it. And so it goes beyond ambition almost to this just like really deep-seated knowledge that she has what it takes to be the ruler her country needs. And she starts to step up and take those steps and be that leader and actually do it. Yeah, Amari is such an important character. And as much as last episode, I think I admitted that I identify with aspects of Zaley because Zaley's very brash and very headstrong, right? But I think a lot of women... And myself included, I identify even more with Amari, right? Because she is this, she embodies female oppression so well because she is a literal princess, right? And she's raised to be a literal princess. And in some way, I think all of us are kind of raised to be literal princesses. We have it embodied into us. And there's nothing wrong with soft femininity. There's nothing bad about that at all. But Amari is able to find herself as a queen. She's able to stand on her own two feet and she's able to find that fire within herself and do what needs to be done. And I think the queen aspect is also so important because women are so reluctant usually to take leadership roles. And part of it is because we lead differently than men. This idea of you were right when you said that she found it because she knew that she was the best person for the job and that she had the best interest at heart and that she would do it if it needed to be done. And it does need to be done. And I think that's true for a lot of us. And a lot of us need to start taking power when we can, not necessarily in an abusive way, but because it needs to get done and we can do it and we know that we can do it. And Amari really marries the two parts of herself, like you were saying. She's got this soft feminine part, and that doesn't go away when she decides that she should be queen. That's part of it, and that's part of what makes her a good and empathetic ruler. But she's also able to use this other darker, steelier side that she's been shunning for years, because again, she didn't want to be her father's weapon. And she's able to find this internal harmony between those two things that externally allows her to step into the role that as readers, you you leave the book feeling like she was born to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I most certainly agree. And the fact that she doesn't I mean, at the end of the book, spoiler alert, Amari gains powers. But like the fact that she doesn't have magic throughout this book makes her even more compelling and fantastic because she does physically have less power and is still able to take up this mantle and take up this fight and fight for the people and the causes that she cares about. But I have a quote here on 514 that I want to read. And it's right after Amari goes to try and save Anon's life from her father and her father she turns around while they're sword fighting and her father slashes her in the back zane's scream sounds distant as i stumble into a sacred pillar my skin burns red hot searing with the same agony anon inflicted upon me as a child Veins bulge from father's neck as he charges forward, no hesitation as he angles for a killing blow. He does not cringe at the thought of slaughtering his own daughter, his own flesh and blood. He made his decision. Now it's time for mine. I whip out of harm's way as his sword strikes the pillar, chipping into the stone before he can rally. I plunge my sword forward without hesitation. Father's eyes bulge. Hot blood leaks from his heart onto my hands. He wheezes, crimson spurting from his lips as the rest spills across the stone. Though my hands shake, I plunge the blade in deeper. Tears blur my vision. Do not worry, I whisper as he takes his last breath. I will make a far better queen. And that's just like such a power move. And it's so great because she's literally facing her abuser from one of these huge traumas, perhaps the biggest trauma of her life, right? That she literally bears. And it's not Anon. Anon isn't the person that she blames for this. It's Saran because Anon was a literal child, right? So she gets to vanquish the abuser in this this instance. And she's saying, don't worry, I'm taking your power. It's not going to be your way. Your way's wrong and I can do better. Yeah, yeah, it's really powerful. And I think there's also some very 
Adeyemi doesn't go into what those tears mean that blur her vision, but I think as the reader, you really come to understand that they're tears of a lot of things. Joy and conflict. And as much as she disagrees with her father, there's still part of her that it's still her father. And Amari is still unafraid to do what she feels is right in that moment. And it's such great foreshadowing too, actually, because again, at that page 260, she's just killed the captain and that's her first murder. And Amari doesn't actually pull the trigger, so to speak, on another murder until this moment with her father. So she talks about the fact in with when she kills the captain that she's done it now once. And if necessary to do what she needs to do, she'll do it again. And the next person she does it to is her father. So there's this real, I mean, foreshadowing, but also poetic justice, but also the emotions laid on. Because Amari is, I mean, honestly, maybe a little unrealistically so, really well adjusted considering everything that she's gone through. But there's these little moments where you see the cracks in her armor, so to speak. There's a moment where she and Anon are reunited for the first time, realizing that they're sort of on the same side. And Anon is like talking about his new dreams for the future and magic and things like that. And he hugs her. And she has this moment where she's like, I hug him. But all I can think are the fact that his hands are right above where he cut me as a child. She still holds on to all of this trauma, but is still able, with Anon, like you were saying, to understand that his fault in the moment is complex because he was also a child and it was Saran's directives. And like, she just has such deep emotional intelligence that she really uses through this entire book. Anon is the one whose gift is empathy, But she's the emotionally intelligent one. She's the one who is able to get to the root of and process not only her own emotions, but also helps with the emotions of those around her, you know? And we see it in the moment with Zaley, but we also see it from the very beginning where they are ultimately able to start swaying her and change her mind. Yes, to a certain extent, she's caught up on this venture because she was escaping the castle for selfish reasons. But the need for justice for Binta drives her that entire time and just makes her so open to other people's experiences that it's just very beautiful to see her story end in a way that is so powerful, but feels very emotionally vulnerable as well. Yeah, I mean... So I've done some self-research on adverse childhood experiences, right? Which is this big study going on that essentially, I think kind of problematically categorizes your trauma (laughs) and gives you a score. And I have a very high score. (laughs) But anyway, one of the big things that helps people because there's there's a whole slew of research that's found that adverse childhood experiences not only fucks your up your mental health, but fucks up your bodily health as well and can really determine it really it really makes it a lot harder to succeed at anything else in life but one of the big things that can help with adverse childhood experiences that they found is human connection and a loving safe space and we talked about this last episode too but you mentioned too you were like maybe even a little bit unrealistic I found it less unrealistic because of Binta because Binta was her safe space Binta provided all of that emotional care for her, that emotional aftercare. She had the same person growing up until she was a teenager and Binta was stolen from her, right? So like Binta was the reason why she's able to be well-adjusted and the reason why she's able to have that empathy and that emotional intelligence because she was given such love and care from her friend. And I think something that's really interesting about that, I can see your perspective here, is the fact that Amari can also now recognize the fact that she wishes she could have been there for Binta in the same way, but for a variety of reasons, wasn't and felt like she couldn't. So there's this real full circle moment, I feel like, too, for her character. Throughout the entire book, she's driven by this need for justice for her friend. But it's not until the end, actually until she really gets close with Zaley, where she explicitly is like, I wish I could have been more there for you. I wish I could have done for you what you've done for me. Because she's able to almost, I don't want to say humanize, because I don't think that she ever treats Binta like an object. But like, there's this real moment of human connection with her dead friend where she also thinks about so explicitly the traumas that she endured as well and the fact that in some ways she had to go through them alone because Amari wasn't able to offer that same level of love and emotional care as Binta was able to do back onto her. Yeah and I think that there's 
a complex relationship there that we haven't really explored on the podcast with Amari and Binta. Earlier in the book, in the first half, Zaley points out Binta is her servant. And I think that Amari's recognition of that comes throughout the book because Binta couldn't share those experiences with Amari, not just because of Amari's trauma, but because Amari lived such a privileged life and was the princess and it wasn't her place to share those experiences. So there's a really, even though Binta had such a profound effect on Amari's character and made Amari a better person, there is a real unfairness and weird power structure to this friendship that I think Amari is constantly unpacking throughout this book. And I really appreciate the fact that it feels like she does unpack it. After Zaley points it out to her, she spends some time reckoning with that, you know, wrapping her mind around that. And that's part of the reason I think that when she thinks about this, she specifically says she couldn't be there for her. And I think that word couldn't, it's not like I wasn't there for you, right? Because that's all about personal failing to me. That's like, oh, it was a shitty friend almost. And that's not really what happened to a certain extent because there was all of these structures that they were in in place that kept it so that there was a barrier between the two of them that Amari couldn't see when she was so ingrained within that power structure that kept them separate. Yeah, I appreciate the way you worded that too, because I agree. I think that it's it's all about Amari didn't have the emotional intelligence at that point in her life to break through those social structures and to be the type of friend that Binta probably needed and the type of friend that Binta was to her. Yeah, and I also appreciate, just going off of that, the fact that her relationship with Zaley is very different. It doesn't feel like the author by any means tried to like use Amari's relationship with Zaley to like right the wrongs of everything that happened with Binta, which I think is especially in YA a trope that can often happen with these kinds of narratives. But she has very distinct relationships with both girls with very distinct things that she has to unpack about power and who has it and who doesn't. And while Zaley helps her see, I think some of those barriers with Binta, her friendship with Zaley doesn't automatically give her absolution from some of those mistakes and those previous encounters either. It's not like she's suddenly friends with Zaley and therefore everything that happened with Binta in the past and other people of lower classes is like erased and absolved. It's their distinct friendships that have distinct needs. And Zaley and Amari really push each other to grow. Zaley in the first half, because she calls her out on a lot of Amari's bullshit and is able to help her push past that. And then later, Amari gives Zaley that space to be vulnerable and to like not be so hot headed for just a minute and just a space to to human without worrying about the consequences and without worrying about being the chosen one, right? Because on the on the one hand, this isn't really a chosen one story in the sense that there's four main characters who I think all have relatively equal stakes in what's happening and influence in what's happening. But if any of them is the chosen one, it's Zaley because she's the only one who can really bring the magic back. And with Amari, she doesn't have to be that person in a way that I don't think she has the same reprieve with Anon especially, but not even with Zane, you know, because there's so much happening tension wise between the two siblings about leadership and all of this stuff that Amari's really the only place where she just gets to be Zaley. Yeah, no, I agree. And I also think too, there's there's something about empowering about meeting somebody who understands you and who you are at this point in your life versus with Zane. Zane and Zaley grew up together. So Zane sees Zaley as she was as a child. And I think that really inhibits you from fully seeing a person as they are now because you still see their past self. So I think that it's important that Amari and Zaley meet at this point in their lives because they get to meet as they're both growing tremendously and becoming better people. Yeah, I totally agree. Would you like to move on to Zaley now? I don't know that I have a ton else to add just because a lot of Zaley's growth was really tied to stuff about Anon and Amari that we've already talked about. But she does have her own arc. She does bring the magic back. She loses her magic. She goes through intense trauma. And the real key here, again, is the fact that her father dying is the key to bringing her magic back. Shall we Shall we dive in? Yeah, I wish I had done more, more research onto Eurebian ancestor veneration. 
because I know that this is something that exists in many traditions, and I imagine there's probably a tie here too. But the idea of blood being a place of power has existed in many African traditions, at least. I don't know the specifics of Nigeria, though. But I think it's so empowering to like have that and be like, it's more empowering, I think, to find your power within yourself than it is an outside source. And so I love that she was able, I know that Baba dying is problematic, sure. I love that she was able to be like, oh, I don't need the scroll. I don't need Sky Mother. I can make my own connection. And I have a great quote too, if, but maybe you want to say something first. <laughs> I was just going to say that I, and you're right, it's complicated and problematic because Baba's being there is so inherently tied again to Anon's betrayal of Zaley. And of course you don't want her father to die, right? This human sacrifice for the greater good, so to speak. But I agree that there's something, there is something empowering from this idea that her power comes from within and comes from her family, especially including the scene where she's a essentially in the afterlife talking to her mother for the first time in this whole novel and her mother is so proud of her and knew she had it within her the entire time and I think especially also after Zaley uses blood magic for the first time in that gladiator battle she's terrified of blood magic which she can't really share with anyone because she's you know fighting against people who are scared of all kinds of magic but internally she swears to herself that she'll never use it again and indeed gets more scared later when Kwame uses blood magic to burn even brighter and burns himself out and she wishes she could stop him but doesn't and at the end she has to reclaim blood magic for herself even though it's extraordinarily traumatic but there's like something in that trauma that's still beautiful about the fact that it's with her father and for her father that it feels in a weird way there's still justice for her family in that she's able to use all of that to bring magic back for everyone. But I agree with you that there's still parts of that that are like problematic, that are hard to nitpick out of all of this. I mean, with Baba's death, I think the only thing that really bothered me about that is that Baba is kind of a burden to Zaley and Zane, even though they love him. And you mentioned before that he might have something that kind of sounds like Alzheimer's. I wasn't able to identify it. I don't know that much about that disease. So, but like he definitely has something going on. And to me, it felt kind of a convenient, oh, well, now we don't have to worry about Baba anymore. And also now he gets to go be back with his wife. So he's happy. And, you know, now we can just move on and not have to worry about any connection and not have to like carry this load. And I think that might maybe could have been handled a little bit more great. Gracefully. It just it just felt jarring because it's like Baba dies and then oh wait but yeah now we have the power <laughs> now we figured it out. I think especially it's jarring because Zaley doesn't have and I get why this is done for dramatic effect right she literally brings the magic back she dies she comes back she sees that the magic is back and then the book ends but because it's a series there's no time to see her unpack any of this including the fact that she also discovers that Mama Agba is dead and that's the reason Baba's there I think that part of some of the things that feel traumatic about this to the point where it feels problematic is just the fact that in this moment Zaley has no time to process any of this brand new trauma she just has to go but I also have faith just given how well everything else in this book was really handled that in the next one we'll get to see her process this trauma so like while this scene did make me feel a little oh god we're really going this way I do have faith that Adeyemi is gonna like reckon with this appropriately in the second book if that makes sense yeah I feel like that too because everything here does seem very intentional and we're gonna read the author's note later for our homework and I think that when I read that that really honed in for me how intentional everything in this book really is yeah but the blood magic thing I think For me, yeah, it's just the idea of drawing power from yourself. And I have a quote. I have a quote that I I want to use to ground this discussion further. It's on page 518. The, The chapter is chapter 84. Okay. As it fades, I see the truth in plain sight, yet hidden all along. We are all children of blood and bone, all instruments of vengeance and virtue. This truth holds me close, rocking me like a child in a mother's arms. It binds me in its love as death swallows me into its grasp. So to me, all of the blood magic stuff and the stuff when she, Oya is her mother or takes the form of her mother, she sees her mother. To me, it really, it felt very feminist. 
because it's talking about this huge, when we think of mother's love and when we think of it symbolically, it, it kind of feels like the ultimate love, this ultimate nurturing, this ultimate caring. And love is the greatest thing when we think of, of mothers and children and their relationship. And I feel like love and that idea is really, I think the idea of love by making Oya have her mother's image, by making it blood magic. I think the point of that for this book is that we're pushing the idea of love as our great connector, as the the thing that's going to end up saving us. And then I loved, I loved this, this part on 5819, that we're all instruments of vengeance and virtue, because we're all the same. We're all the same children. We're not obviously all the same. We all have our different choices that we make, but we're all capable of being monsters, which was my my great love for Anon's storyline. Like we get to see what it looks like to make bad decisions, which is something I think I've hammered in in this podcast, this idea that there are no bad people. We are just here making bad choices and we have to reckon with that and understand that we're all capable of this so that we can continue to make good choices or so that we can make up for wrong choices that we've made in the past. And I also, for me, really helped my understanding of what I think the magic system looks like in this book in terms of I think magic might be accessible to all. I I don't know that yet because I haven't read the whole series, but I think that that's what this is hinting at. And I think that's further affirmed when we see Amari gain magic too. It's not something that the gods are choosing. They're not choosing some people over others. Like we are all the same people. Yes. Also, this the symbolism when Amari's magic comes out in the same way that Bintas did when she died was chef's kiss. Sad, but really just like the full circle where she sees Binta shoot, you know, rays of light out of her hands. And then that's what she does to show Zaylee that she has magic now. I think another interesting thing is, I mean, first of all, that, you know, that line is beautiful, but also is the titles for the first and second book. But I think that the idea of playing blood and bone to me personally, like makes sense almost as opposers, right? Bones are extraordinarily strong, but brittle and breakable. Whereas blood is flowing and flexible, but will also kill you if you lose too much of it. And I had to think more about the juxtaposition of virtue and vengeance because in my head and maybe you know this is just my western upbringing with christianity shoved down my throat but like in my head it would have been virtue and vice as sin so virtue and vengeance to me was a really interesting pairing here of the idea that it's not necessarily about good versus evil necessarily in that sense it's about choice like you were saying And I think also it's interesting because I don't think it necessarily paints vengeance out as being the bad choice there, right? Because I think that if it said something like virtue and vice, you would have mentally as the reader inferred that vengeance gets rolled up into that. But instead, it's just different choices. And I think that Amari, to a certain extent, might end up following the virtue to a certain extent and that she's hopefully going to become queen over Anon becoming king. That's something that We'll explore, I'm sure, in the rest of the series. And she's going to have to contend with the ills of her family and bring more harmony to this nation, hopefully. Whereas I do think that Zaley is more of a story of vengeance, which I think that she gets at the end, even though she's not the person who slaughters the king who wrought all of this on her family. And neither of those things are villainized. They're just different paths to get to what they need as humans, almost. And what the world needs as well, because the world simultaneously needs a significantly better ruler and somebody with enough vengeance within them to bring the magic back. And they're hopefully going to get both of that out of these two women. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't be all one thing. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Do we want to wrap up so we can get to homework? Yeah, all right, let's do homework. Harmony Harmony has offered the fact that the author's note in itself of this book is homework, so I think she's going to she's going to read it to us. You could do like every other paragraph because it's almost two pages. I shed many tears before I wrote this book. Many tears as I revised it, and even as it sits in your hands now, I know I will shed tears again. Although riding giant lion airs and performing sacred rituals might be in the realm of fantasy, 
All the pain, fear, sorrow, and loss in this book is real. Children of Blood and Bone was written during a time where I kept turning on the news and seeing stories of unarmed black men, women, and children being shot by the police. I felt angry and afraid and helpless, but this book was the one thing that made me feel like I could do something about it. I told myself that if just one person could read it and have their hearts or minds changed, then I would have done something meaningful against a problem that often feels so much bigger than myself. Now this book exists and you are reading it. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. But if this story affected you in any way, all I ask is that you don't let it stop within the pages of this text. If you cried for Zulika and Salim, cried for innocent children like Jordan Edwards, Tamir Rice, and Ayana Stanley Jones, they were 15, 12, and 7 when they were shot and killed by police. If your heart broke for Zaley's grief over the death of her mother, then let it break for all the survivors of police brutality who have had to witness their loved ones taken firsthand. Survivors like Diamond Reynolds and her four-year-old daughter, who were in the car when Philando Castile was pulled over, shot, and killed. Hieronimo Yanez, the officer who killed him, was acquitted of all charges. These are just a few tragic names in a long list of Black lives taken too soon. Mothers ripped from daughters, fathers ripped from sons, and parents who will live the rest of their lives with the grief no parent should have to know. This is just one of the many problems plaguing our world, and there are so many days when these problems still feel bigger than us. But let this book be proof to you that we can always do something to fight back. Okay, so we're not going to read the Yoruba, you guys. We're just going to skip over it because we don't want to be disrespectful to the Yorubian people and we know that our pronunciations would be wrong. As Zaley says in the ritual, we are all children of blood and bone. And just like Zaley and Amari, we have the power to change the evils in the world. We've been knocked down for far too long. Now, let's rise. I just think that's so beautiful. So that's your homework, everybody, from Adeyemi herself. She wants you to rise. She wants you to do something. She wants you to take this book and think about it and think critically about empathy and how power works and particularly how it relates to Black lives, which I think is super important because this episode is airing right after the inauguration. And, you know, recently we've seen a lot of white supremacy in this country, which has always been there, but it keeps rearing its ugly head and people are dying. I mean, we're literally recording on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yeah, do something. And it doesn't have to be super big because I know that it feels scary and like one person can't change, but do keep doing things. Think about it and then keep doing things, however small, to contribute to a better world. And I think that I would also like to add, because we talked really recently about the fact that I'm from Sandy Hook and gun violence has really shaped my life. I would like to add a personal and specific plea that if you are white or a non-Black person of color who has been affected by gun violence, please think more holistically about what gun violence looks like and the ways in which, as Ed Ayemi points out in that author's note, it is specifically utilized in police violence and police brutality. So often the fight sort of against gun violence purposefully excludes police brutality in an effort to not politicize something that's already so political, she says with much sarcasm. But if we're going to move forward to a better world, we need to think about things that affect everyone and how issues like gun violence affect, you know, people that don't look like you differently. And I think that that's, especially given how poignant that author's note is specifically about police brutality And given what I've shared recently on the podcast about my experiences with gun violence, I'd like to leave you with that personally, that your fight isn't just against school shootings or things like that. Your fight is against police brutality. Your fight is against the fact that anyone in this nation can get a gun. Your fight is against the fact that kids on the streets in Chicago die all the time mostly Black kids, and no one talks about them and mourns them the same way that people mourn the kids that I lost in Sandy Hook. So think holistically about your world and use your powers and your experience to think broadly about everyone, because people who sit there advocating for against gun violence who only talk about their own experiences are, in my opinion, 
gravely missing the point. And this is something I see a lot. So I'd like to leave you all with that as a specific call to action, I think related to that author's note, but really what Harmony says, like if you read this book and it hits you, don't just let empathy sit in a fantasy world. Take it and apply it to your own world. On that dark note, <laughs> would you, is this book feminist? Yes. I don't want to offer any explanation. It just is. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it needs it. I, it's just, it is feminist. At the halfway point, I think there needed to be context, but not at this point. Yeah. What are you reading right now, Maggie? I am in two books right now. I am reading The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., which is <laughs> not that I, I mean, you know, we talked about police brutality and Black Lives Matter last week, but I hadn't read the author's note before we just read that. And wow, these two books are related. The The Prophets is all about the ways in which the criminal justice system is designed to keep Black people oppressed, essentially, but in literary fiction. And then I'm also reading Outlawed by Anna North, which is... I want to say it's later. It's kind of not. It's this like alternate universe Western where women who can't get pregnant after they get married after a year are they can like almost be executed. And so when this happens to this woman, she becomes an outlaw cowboy, cowgirl who like goes around trying to change the world. Different vibes, dark for different reasons. What about you? I, I took a break from all my books so that I could finish this book in time for our recording schedule. But I'm still reading Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and still reading Take a Hint, Danny Brown. And I just got from the library, haven't started it yet, but I just got it today. Cemetery Boys? I don't know who the author is for that. Oh, I've heard that's amazing. I'm very, 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 very excited to start it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that's a really, really good book. That got like all the hype last year. Tell me how it is. I'm excited to hear somebody who I actually know read it. Next week, we're reading Akata Witch. By Nettie Akorafor. We're having, uh, the beginning of February is like all about Nettie Akorafor. So we're really keeping up with the sort of African fantasy sci-fi inspired books and charging forward with that. Yeah, apparently we really like African books about sci-fi and fantasy. That's just our thing, I guess. We will talk to you all next week. Goodbye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.